to Reworking Talent, the podcast that tackles the top challenges in today's small business-focused talent market. I'm your host, Brent Scott, founder and CEO of Found Consulting. We're a growth-centered people operations and recruiting consultancy. Joining me is Lindsay Warren, Found's Manager of Talent Operations and NCAA softball champion with a 0.347 batting average. (laughs) We're here to give actionable advice to business leaders and aspiring business leaders, both on a personal and organizational scale. Now, I have been waiting for this week's podcast because our guest is the best. Um, Samantha Adams and I, we worked together in a past life and uh, she has since gone on to do some really, really amazing things. Um, and uh, Samantha, uh, or Sam, uh, is an experienced compensation benefits and employment law professional. She currently works in Deloitte's compensation center for excellence. And she has over 15 years of varied experience spanning, uh, uh, all, all across human resources. Um, and she has a lot of opinions about the future of work in a post COVID environment. Um, so beyond being an HR guru, she just is one of the funniest and most genuine people I know. So uh, it's it's a pleasure to have her on and welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us. Amazing. Um, first question, softball here. Uh, should employers be posting salary ranges in job ads? Well, I think considering California just signed into law last week that salary ranges are required on job postings. Um, yeah, I think the rest of the country is going <laughs> to follow that. Uh, aside from following what a major state is doing, I think it's very important to start the employment relationship off with a lot of transparency mm-hmm, and continue mm-hmm. that transparency through the lifetime of the employment relationship, basically. Um, And that that really starts with the recruiting, right? With the job ad. And just like you want your candidate to know what the success expectations are, the candidate needs to know what the salary expectations are. And that's just going to be the future of work. Mm -hmm. And I know we don't like it because we like to keep those secrets close to the vest, but it really is how technology is going to evolve. It's it. It was always coming to this point. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I uh, I love that answer because I love it when uh, employers post post that in the in the job description. I think it saves a lot of time on both ends mm-hmm. from the cr- recruiting perspective as well as uh, the candidate perspective because people are going to self screen out if uh, if they're like, yeah, that's not what I'm looking for. That, right. That's exactly. Exactly. Um, And and there's nothing worse than having a great conversation with a candidate (laughs) that checks all the boxes and then ask for 30 K over the budget at the very end. So yes, yes, definitely on board with that. Yeah, exactly. And if you can sell someone for lower than what they were requesting, they're probably not going to stick around for that long. I don't know what the statistics are on that, but I'm sure it's probably, you know, a year or less uh, Hmm. in in the aggregate that, that that occurs. I, I think you're probably right. And speaking mm-hmm. of, man, the the past two years, uh, 
compensation has gone through a ton of changes, at least I feel like anecdotally. Um, so can you walk us through some of the ups and downs? Uh, what's been driving some of this really rapid evolution over the past two years? I think it's been a long time coming. Um, mm. And like, I think that for purposes of this conversation, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. You know, we could talk about the dot-com bubble and how that inspired the change of work and all of that. Um, but considering that millennials are the largest generation in the workforce right now, I think should probably focus more on what they've been through. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it all started for us in the 2008 crash. Uh, us elder millennials, I'm an elder millennial, uh, <laughs> we were exiting college right around 2008. And we were entering the workforce and being told that our very expensive degrees were absolutely worthless. Mm -hmm. And we were having a lot of trouble finding jobs. And we're the children of the largest generation, the baby boomers. So there was a ton of us fighting over jobs. Mm -hmm. So all of that created this event where companies could pay significantly less than they had prior. Mm, Yeah. And it lasted for many years. Um, You know, it it eased up after a couple of years, but I think for those of us that started at a very low salary, it's incredibly hard to get to the point where you should have been in the first place with a standard 3% increase. And mm-hmm. a standard 10% promotion, maybe every three to five years, if if you're lucky at that time. So uh, millennials started out with very low pay. I don't think there is a single statistic that can say otherwise, mm-hmm. that we were really kind of put through the ringer in that time. Um, so the next major issue that millennials entered into was COVID, of course. Uh, yeah. And... And, you know, just getting our feet under us. And then, uh, and then that happened. Exactly. We had kind (laughs) of put that behind us. We had been in our careers, Uh, you know, some of us were just entering the workforce, but a lot of us had been in our careers for, you know, five to 10 years at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we all remember what happened. The whole economy tanked, people were laid off. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a lot of fear and uncertainty. And I think what we found There were a lot of companies that made a lot of money during COVID Mm -hmm. and we saw record high profits. We've been seeing record high profits uh, from, you know, kind of, I don't want to say across the board, that's general generalizing too much, but um, you know, we, we did see that trend where a lot of companies were making money hand over fist and growing Mm -hmm. and they started opening jobs up. Um, and considering that during COVID, we were losing on average like 300 people a day, uh, that was sometime in 2021 when the great resignation or yeah, the great resignation started Yeah. Um, like July timeframe. We were losing 300 people a day. So we had a million people less in the workforce mm-hmm. and we had more jobs. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's going to create competition and the seesaw is going to flip the other way where companies no longer have a great control over what they're paying employees for a number of circumstances. Um, 
And people saw how they were treated during COVID. You know, companies were really scared. It happened really fast and they reacted. And a lot of employees just weren't happy with their employer at the time. So they switched. Um, Another major factor during COVID is the CARES Act. And that Mm -hmm. was when unemployment was, uh, there was an expansion to unemployment. And quite a few people found that they were making more money in unemployment than they did with their jobs. And I'm pulling this, I'm pulling this out of my ass from two and a half years ago of, of reading that entire act and translating it to my general counsel at the time. But uh, I remember correctly, if you earned, I think it was somewhere around $80,000 or less, which is a lot of people you would have made more in unemployment being laid off than you would have staying at your job. It may have been somewhere around 70. Don't quote me on that. It was sure. Sure. It was a fairly high salary, just given how the, the expansion to unemployment benefits were written. And a lot of millennials for the first time were laid off and were making more money than they were previously and actually had hobbies, actually had time to uh, spend with their families. Mm -hmm. Um, And even even those that weren't laid off, we had time given back to us with our commutes. So we were all working. Well, I don't want to say we were all working from home, but standard office jobs were working from home mostly. Um, And, you know, you're given more time to think and more time to prioritize when you're not in that major grind set that you have been in for your entire career up to that point. So I think a lot of different things happened and culminated into this situation where everyone wanted to switch jobs and everyone wanted like a 20% increase when doing so. Rightfully so. so. And, uh, you know, I've completely forgotten to mention inflation. I'm by no means an economic expert, but like that had a ton to do with it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's been a lot of ups and downs for the millennial generation over the years. Yeah, Um, I don't. I don't think this is just my personal opinion. I don't think it's going to really completely stop and go back into the favor of companies for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll slow down. We've seen it slow down, but uh, there's a lot of talent out there. There's a lot of strong talent out there that's actually past the development stage of their career that's getting into expert territory and that commands a higher salary just sure. does sure well and and that brings up the question of you know talking about work-life balance um it seems like it seems like there's obviously there's been a huge shift to remote work as well and i i've it, it, this is going off topic a, a little bit i guess but i but i've had several clients ask us about uh it used to be if I was living uh, in Athens, Ohio, I I would be making a certain salary because I live in Athens, Ohio versus mm-hmm. having the same job in San Francisco. And so in your opinion, working for this huge multinational corporation, is geography dead at this point or are, are we still paying people based on you're in Athens, you're in San Francisco, you're in New York? I think, I think it depends. That's a philosophical mm. debate, right? Mm. You, so a place like Deloitte 
they're centered really East Coast, New York City, mm -hmm. California, major cities. Um, Geo-indexing for a company like Deloitte, and there's so many businesses under Deloitte, I cannot possibly speak for the entire <laughs> what we call green dot. Um, but, you know, if you geo-index, your salaries are going to be higher than if you use the national range. And, you know, some businesses do, some businesses are on their way to doing that uh, under Deloitte, but it, it's complicated and it's complex and it could save you money, could save you a lot of money. Right. Um, it could be more expensive depending on where your population is. And you just have to model that out and see which way you want to go. Ultimately, I'm going to say that you do want a geo index. You're not going to recruit and retain talent in high salary markets if you don't you can't mm -hmm. pay the national range to someone in new york city you just can't you're not going to find good talent uh they're not going to be motivated they're going to be getting offers from other places that do geo index so in order to be competitive it's pretty important to do so but um you know i don't want to negate the affordability concern that companies have because affordability is number one mm -hmm. i i'm i'm going to err on the side of the employee most of the time, because that's my job, you know, right. I'm, yeah. I'm, mm -hmm. Hell yeah. I'm not there, you know, recruiters are our natural enemies, basically, we're constantly <laughs> butting heads, uh, you know, <laughs> you, know, you want to pay people more, and I say, no, that's, that's probably not right, here's where you should be, uh, it's just evergreen, right, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, um, but ultimately, yeah, I think geo-indexing is the way that most companies need to go if they're not already doing it. Uh, yeah. But affordability is is probably the biggest concern, and and you definitely don't want to negate that. Work with work with your CFO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See if it's available. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so in uh, in speaking of differences in in pay i i was reading an article uh in corn ferry recently uh that was talking about pay transparency and and the way that companies have been trying to bridge this pay gap specifically this this article specifically was about men versus women um and it was talking about doing things like like starting companies starting junior level employees at the exact same salary, making sure of that, um, but then conducting audits three, four, five years later and finding that somehow employees, uh, male employees were out earning their female counterparts, mm -hmm. even in the same position. And I just got to ask, how the hell is this still happening? Um, I mean, there's there's a lot to it. It's a complicated question. I think, uh, first and foremost, a lot of studies have been done and leave of absence. Um, you know, we're, we're very much still in a society where women are the caretakers, the family. Uh, so if there's a family emergency, generally it's the woman who takes leave to take care of it. And again, pregnancy too, right? Like so many leaves of absences um, that could potentially occur for women compared to men. And uh, there's no federal law that states that you have to pay uh, for FMLA or, or anything like that. FMLA is unpaid. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the family 
Family Medical Leave Act, by the way, that's the 12 weeks unpaid for giving birth, taking care of a family, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, so like there's usually this big gap in pay, especially for young women who want to start a family. And that follows you throughout your career because potentially for that one year, if you're out for three months, your performance is going to suffer depending yeah, right. on when that happens. And it, if you go out, one leave of absence could potentially span between two fiscal years. And that affects two years, right? So like if you, if you go out in November and you come back February 1 and you're on a calendar year, you know, there's two years there that you can be dinged. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's complicated, right? So given that scenario, women are going to earn less because there's no protections for, to, to pay women uh, when they're out and yeah, you're, performance just tends to suffer. And, you know, I'm not going to negate misogyny and racism is still very much prevalent in our society. I I don't Mm -hmm. want to say that that we solved it, guys. Um, (laughs) I wish you could say that. (laughs) Totally. I could go on and on about this topic, but, um, you know, a very oversimplified kind of way to think about it is we've consumed media our whole lives. Mm -hmm. And, No one is immune from it. And we're told that women are less capable, um, they're less dedicated, and they're more inclined to serve without complaint. And and that is going to feed into an unconscious bias at some point. Um, And ultimately the answer is until we eradicate misogyny and racism, it's probably still gonna happen. We are seeing progress, though. That's the good news. Um, I think a lot of companies have implemented DNI programs Mm -hmm. that uh, are very helpful. Um, ERGs, so that's employee resource groups. Um, That's when employees can band together and create their own little unique group um, that does have like some exclusions. So like a a women's group in your company or Um, like my, my partner, Devin, he works in tech and they have a little group called, I don't want to say little group, that's condescending. They have a group, (laughs) they have a group called black tech and, um, you know, he's constantly in discord, like chatting with them and, and connecting with them. So I think that things like that help you because you have support and you have community Mm -hmm. within your workspace. And it's incredibly important during remote work. Yeah. So complicated. It's, there's a lot of factors that go into that and uh, we're still working through it. Yeah. (laughs) We will be for a while, I think. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's a, there's a few things you said in there that I'm going to need to sit on for a little bit. That was, that was very powerful. I like what you said. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly a case for merit-based increases and discretionary pay here, um, but I know that these can also contribute to pay inequity, as you have mentioned. So do these types of bonuses still have a place in today's workplace? Bonuses are funny. Um, (laughs) Most companies don't do it right. They Mm -hmm. just don't. And, you know, a bonus program really needs to be tied to very clear, very succinct goals and it needs to be measurable and calculable. Is that is that a word? It needs to be able sure, to be yeah, sure. 
um, you know, uh, you can't just as a company go, wow, re we reached plan. Here's a budget. Here's how we're going to divvy it up between 100 people. That's all well and good. The stickiness of that bonus mm. is it lasts for one day, the day that the employee receives it. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're going to get. How, why would you stick around for bonus time? Mm -hmm. Right. Does that make sense? Like the discretionary aspect of most bonus plans just kind of negates it for most employees. Yeah. The, the biggest bang for your buck is in base salary. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have a bonus plan, you know, create very specific goals and make it, you know, 10% of base salary. If these things are achieved and you're able to measure it over time, that's where you see a lot of bang for your buck with bonuses. Outside of that, it's it's really kind of a, you know, here you go, mm. a few hundred or a few thousand dollars and the employee's happy for one day. And then the next day they're mad because their base salary is low. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of, uh-huh kind of the nature of, of bonus plans. Um, yeah. 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 Well, and it, and it seems like also paying people appropriately on the base level, um, also will in the long run, as you were mentioning, women are disproportionately impacted by leave of absence, by things like performance reviews tied to discretionary bonuses, those types of things. Um, so I would imagine that just paying people appropriately on the base level uh, is going to aid in paying people fairly um, in the long run too. Well, so how can business leaders do better for women and minority employees at their companies? Um, are there policies are there policies that you've found that uh, actually help in meaningful ways? Because I, I feel like there is a lot of lip service being paid to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion these days. And I think that there's, there's also a lot of confusion about like, okay, well, how do we make this actionable? How do we actually measure that impact? So yeah, have have you come across any um, any policies that are that are truly having an impact? That's a very difficult thing to measure. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, from a compensation standpoint, you know, it's it's complicated. You have to tackle the misogyny and racism aspect that we talked about a few minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you have to make an impact on your company culture. Uh, taking unconscious bias out of performance reviews is a bare minimum. Mm. Um, and you do that with, you know, potentially a formulaic approach or, or something like that. You know, you have to put some really hard guardrails into performance reviews to take that element out of there. Um, you know, taking unconscious bias out of recruiting and hiring is the bare minimum. Right. Uh, you know, resume blinding and that sort of thing. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, studies that have been done on that, that uh, recruiters may see a name that they associate with a certain gender or race or whatever. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, thrown to the wind, whereas another one, exact same resume is picked up. Um, super interesting stuff. But, you know, tackling that from a cultural level is pretty important. Um, I also think most companies 
are going to hate this, but salary range transparency. And by that, I mean actually posting your salary ranges on your website publicly, not just in a job posting, Mm. but all of them in one area. That's on the horizon. We're not there yet. Most companies are not there yet. Um, And most companies don't want to be there for completely understandable reasons. But Mm -hmm. I think from a company standpoint, you need to control that narrative the very beginning. Right. Uh, you You can educate your employees that this is the salary range. This is where you're expected to start with entry level. You know, you're here in the band. Uh, let's get you to X, Y, and Z in the next year. You know, really work with employees to um, educate them and show them that, hey, this is the range. This is your expectation. Mm-hmm. I, I also think that, um, you know, your employees are going to talk about their salaries. Everyone talks about their salaries. We just don't like to admit it, but but we do <laughs> in closed doors. Uh-huh. I've I've been in HR for 15 years and I have yet to work for a company where that doesn't happen like rampantly. And I just think controlling that narrative is incredibly important. And it starts with that level of transparency. You're also held accountable to a certain degree as a company. Once you do that, um, you can't pay people well under the, the band minimum. Yeah. You just can't do that anymore because that information is out there. But I do think um, the job posting, having the salary ranges on there is the first step to mm. companies doing that. We've already seen a few companies do that, but it's I think it's definitely on the horizon and probably a very progressive thing for me to say, but mm-hmm. I do think that that's where we're, we're headed. Um, and I say all of that because having that information does help erase that bias. Mm-hmm. It does help with, um, you know, misogyny and, and the race bias that that occurs. And like I said, there's an accountability aspect to it. Um, you know, you're auditing yourself more, you're being more careful with what you were paying people, you're paying more attention to it. Um, right. The other thing, just real briefly that I wanted to talk about, nepotism is the absolute enemy of any sort of progress with DE&I. Mm-hmm. It's so toxic to have your favorite best friends work for you and give them the best jobs and the best pay. Every company does it. Um, you know, I've been in HR a long time. Every company is a shit show behind the curtain. It, it's, no one has it fully together. We're all like trying to figure this out on the fly as things are changing. Like that's just the, the nature of companies. We're, we're humans, right? Sure. Um, but, you know, recognizing where nepotism exists, I think, is is very, very important uh, to progressing your company, mm-hmm. to providing equity, and just being better for your employees. Yeah. That's my soapbox about nepotism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I want to go back to paying people fairly and posting the compensation range. I mean, and to play devil's advocate here. Uh, Deloitte obviously has tremendous resources and reach. Um, so my question for you is how could a smaller company with limited resources uh, ensure that they're paying people fairly and also competing with the big names like Deloitte out there? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of different levers that you can pull. Um, from a compensation standpoint, it's it's difficult because that that is a huge resource. That's going to be your your largest expense outside of if you still have a brick and mortar office. I think that's usually number one, uh, with number two being salaries. But I think um, investing in your HR department is very important. I think mm -hmm. you need to pick the right people. You need to pick the right people that adhere to your culture mm -hmm. in order to, uh, you know, really get a leg up. Um, and I'm biased because, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm HR. And I just think that, I don't know, there has to be a checks and balances in business. Um, while the company needs to consider affordability and, and HR is on the side of business, they're also there for the employees. And I haven't really worked for an HR department that didn't truly care about the employees. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the checks and balances, right? You have you have finance saying we have X dollars and you have HR over here saying, but this needs to happen because X, Y, and Z. And then there's a compromise in between. Um, so I think just investing in your company culture and your HR department, if you don't have like the level of resources that maybe you aspire to, um, that's that's the first start. Uh, ultimately, I, I can't stress enough that you need to have good people under you that can dictate that. Definitely. Yeah, well, I, I feel like that was pretty much your recommendation on how you can continue to attract and retain talent in a unique way. But coming from a recruiter's perspective, how do you sell that in 30 minutes with the role, with all the things? Is there is there any other tips and tricks that you would uh, give us uh, with regards to, you know, maybe competing against higher base salaries for a, a really, really important role for the company uh, versus smaller companies? Yeah. Base salary is important. Salary is important. We need to be able to afford a roof over our heads. You know, that's number one. Mm -hmm. It's not the only reason people stick around. There are plenty of employees out there that have potential over here in this unknown company, but the devil you know is much more safe and comfortable and better. Mm -hmm. um, and you may, you know, have a huge network at your company that prevents you from leaving. You may have excellent benefits at the company that prevents people from leaving. Um, there are just so many levers there that don't necessarily cost money. Mm -hmm. um, some do, but I, I think that while compensation, very important, there are just other elements that people stick around for. And noticing those elements, you know, thinking about every company that you've that you two have ever worked at, what made it fun? Mm. What made you stick yeah. around during the bad times? Like applying that to your company. And I, you know, I would hope that any leadership that's listening to this has had those experiences where uh, in their past, they've worked somewhere where it was really difficult, but they stuck around for one reason or another. How can you put that culture into the company that exists today? That's I love that. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think uh, when in doubt, just ask your employees, right? Uh... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think uh, one thing that I've done a lot in my 
in my years has been sending out just kind of a blind survey to employees. And I know a lot of companies are very survey heavy, especially now that we're all remote and we're in meetings all day and everything's electronic. Um, but, you know, being able to have data and create a story out of that data with what employees want is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And if you can keep that as anonymous as possible, no employee believes that's anonymous, by the way. But if you can, <laughs> right. it is. It is anonymous. I've never known who has submitted anything, but no employee believes me when I say that. Um, you know, it's it's important to be able to quantify what employees want, like in the aggregate, because you can get one or two suggestions from like very loud people, mm-hmm. but that, that's not really going to help the entire populations. I think if there's a way for companies to uh, really find the pulse of their employees and what they want, what most of them want, not just one or two loud people, uh, that's really important for progressing and change and ensuring that your employees stick around. I, I have a I have a question surrounding that because I've been at many uh, a company and uh, I've been in a few HR departments where as opposed to, as you mentioned, a, a lot of people are very survey fatigued. Mm-hmm. Um, so as opposed to asking the whole company uh, what they want and how they feel, uh, they segment the company uh, according to managers. Well, who's your top performer? Who could you afford to get rid of? Um, and either let's ask everyone and uh, make sure that these answers are going into these particular buckets or let's only ask the top performers mm. or the perceived top performers what they want. And I, I just have to ask, what's your opinion on that practice? Um, I think it opens the door for a lot of nepotism. Uh-huh. Now, there are high performers out there that aren't just, you know, the manager's best friend or whatever, like that, that happens more often than not, that happens. Um, but you you definitely open the door for nepotism when you are just handpicking people to tell you things. <laughs> because you're, you're unconsciously wanting uh-huh. them to tell you something that you want to hear. Yeah. And yeah seeing the full analysis in front of you, seeing all of the ugly complaints in front of you, it's not fun. And it's a real blow to to all of our egos, but it's important to see where the problems are from more people. You know, the bigger data set you have, the more powerful that data is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, if you have true high performers there is valuable input there. I wouldn't say that they speak for the whole company, but I think that their viewpoints on what motivates them, what incentivizes them in the day-to-day, why do they stay with your company? Those things are very important to to talk to your high performers about Mm -hmm. and glean ideas. Um, But yeah, there are some other elements there that just the rest of the population really needs to have a say. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you need to be very mindful about how you're selecting top performers and how you're asking those questions is is kind of, kind of what I hear you saying then. 
Yeah, I, there are just certain things, um, like what I said, mostly about like in, incentivation. What is what is it that's intrinsically motivating to these people? Um, that's good data from high performers, but like, are our benefits trash? That that's not that's not a good question to ask your high performers, right? Like. You, you want a, a bigger scope. So it kind of depends on the question and the touch point and the survey. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm ultimately not the biggest fan of cherry picking people because I think you are just unconsciously trying to get the answer that you want when you do that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Um, well, last question for me, and then I promise uh, I, I will, I will leave it at that. Cause I, I, I could ask you a million questions. Seriously, I could sit mm -hmm. here and, and talk to you about your experiences in HR for, for a while. Uh, but um, last question I have for you, another question that's come up from some of our clients is about performance reviews, um, performance management, and specifically about 360 reviews. It's another like hot thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like it seems like nobody has figured out quite how to do it effectively yet. So do you have any tips, tricks? Uh, how do you feel about 360 reviews? Um, should people be, be doing them? Should people not? Uh, it it depends. It, everything, everything that I'm answering, it all depends, right? It's all <laughs> nebulous and relative and all of that, but um, I think 360s are good if they're structured in a way that is useful. Yeah. Um, if you are giving very open-ended questions and you don't have you don't have a third party there to translate that mm -hmm. to the person that is getting a 360, it, I don't want to say it's useless. It's just not as impactful as we think it is. Yeah. Um, if I'm your manager, and we do a 360 and I have to deliver that news to you, all of a sudden that relationship is, uh, uh, you know, it's a little unsettled for a while. Yeah. Um, if there is bad feedback and like there usually is bad feedback in 360s because you're sourcing multiple people. Yeah. Um, there's a usefulness there that just needs the right boundaries to it. Mm -hmm. um, and... I, I think not having a ton of experience in performance reviews, but having a ton of experience with data, uh, actually having like that quantifiable kind of data where yeah. you're rating one to five on these very specific questions that uh, align with your company's values and, and the philosophy and where you want to go as a company mm -hmm. is probably more useful. Um employees will respond better to that than they will the open-ended questions of like, Brenna's horrible at her job and she yelled at me once, you know, like <laughs> just that kind of quantifiable data is, is more useful in my opinion for knowing, uh, you know, where your employees are, what they're doing, how they're perceived and, uh, you know, ultimately what motivates people. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and, and great advice too. Uh, that's a hard one. I, 360s are really tricky. They, um, 
they're really tricky because they can be like very invasive. They're just so nebulous and there's so many elements to it that make it way more complicated than a regular performance review. Um, no one has quite figured it out yet, I think is the answer. Yeah. We're all still like struggling. We're still trying. Deloitte does them. Uh, like everyone is assigned a, a coach, like a mentor in the company type of thing. And that they are the third party that talks to you about your performance, your 360. And like, that's just way more helpful than having hmm. someone on my team or my boss or my boss's boss yeah. talk to me about that, like pretty yeah. sensitive information. And with my coach, I already have like this very specific relationship that isn't the relationship that I have with my manager. My coach is available there for me to complain to, for me to vent to, for me to ask questions. Um, it's it's just a very different relationship. So I think that third party element is probably what a lot of companies may be missing. Um, and it's it's hard to assign coaches to people. It's it's hard to find a third party like that's expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but that might be something that can be played with or tweaked or, or thought about to make those 360s work a little bit better. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I can absolutely see the value in that. Um, thank you so, so much for your time, Sam. Mm -hmm. I, I know uh, I, I certainly know that we have clients that are going to find a, a lot of value in, in mm -hmm. what you said. I mean, some of these questions that I asked you today uh, or that we asked you today are literally directly from them. A lot of them just don't have that uh, HR expertise and support on their team. So, um, so yeah, it was great to learn more about you and, uh, and how Deloitte does things, how you think about HR and, and compensation and benefits. Um, you reach out to us we're happy to connect you with sam you can find us on all major streaming platforms and at www.crownconsulting.info thanks so much for listening